This is an excerpt from the reminiscences of Levi Coffin, in which he talks about the Underground Railroad in 1850. And Coffin said, The fugitives generally arrived in the night and were secreted among the friendly colored people or hidden in the upper room of our house. They came alone or in companies and in a few instances had a white guide to direct them. One company of 28 that crossed the Ohio River at Lawrenceburg, Indiana, 20 miles below Cincinnati, had for conductor a white man whom they had employed to, to assist them. The character of this man was full of contradictions. He was a Virginian by birth and spent much of his time in the South, yet he hated slavery. He was devoid of moral principle, but was a true friend to the poor slave. The company of 28 slaves referred to all lived in the same neighborhood in Kentucky and had been planning for some time how they could make their escape from slavery. This white man, John Fairfield, had been in the neighborhood for some weeks buying poultry, etc. for market. And though among the whites he was assumed to be very pro-slavery, the Negroes soon found out he was their friend. He was engaged by the slaves to help them across the Ohio River and conduct them to Cincinnati. They paid him some money, which they had managed to accumulate. The amount was small, considering the risk, the conductor assumed, but it was all they had. Several of the men had their wives with them, and one woman a little child with her, a few months old. John Fairfield conducted the party to the Ohio River opposite the mouth of the Big Miami, where he knew there were several skiffs tied to the bank near a woodyard. When I asked him afterward if he did not feel compunctions or conscience for breaking these skiffs loose and using them, he replied, no, slaves are stolen property and it is no harm to steal boats or anything else that will help them gain their liberty. The entire party crowded into three large skiffs or yawls and made their way slowly across the river. The boats were overloaded and sank so deep that the passage was made in, in much peril. The boat John Fairfield was in was leaky and began to sink when a few rods from the Ohio bank and he sprang out on the sandbar where the water was two or three feet deep and tried to drag the boat to the shore. He sank to his waist in mud and quicksand and had to be pulled out by some of the Negroes. The entire party waded out through mud and water and reached the shore safely, though all were wet and several lost their shoes. They hastened along the bank towards Cincinnati, but it was now late in the night and daylight appeared before they reached the city. Their plight was the most pitiable one. They were cold, hungry, and exhausted. Those who had lost their shoes in the mud suffered from bruised and lacerated feet, while to add to their discomfort, a drizzling rain fell during the latter part of the night. They could not enter the city, for their appearance would at once proclaim them to be fugitives. When they reached the outskirts of the city below Mill Creek, John Fairfield hid them as well as he could in ravines that had been washed in the sides of the steep hills and told them not to move until he returned. He then went directly to John Hatfield, a worthy colored man, a deacon of the Zion Baptist Church, and told his story. He, applied, he had applied to Hatfield before and knew him to be a great friend to the fugitives, one who had often sheltered them under his roof and aided them in every way he could.
When he arrived, wet and muddy, at John Hatfield's house, he was scarcely recognized. He soon made himself and his errand known, and Hatfield at once sent a messenger to me, requesting me to come to his house without delay, as there were fugitives in danger. I went at once and met several prominent colored men who had also been summoned. While dry clothes and warm breakfast were furnished to John Fairfield, we anxiously discussed the situation of the 28 fugitives who were lying hungry and shivering in the hills in sight of the city. Several plans were suggested, but none seemed practicable. At last, I suggested that someone should go immediately to a certain German livery stable in the city and hire two coaches, and that several colored men should go out in buggies and take the women and children from their hiding places. Then, that the coaches and buggies should form a procession as if going to a funeral and march solemnly along the road leading to Cumminsville on the west side of Mill Creek. In the western part of Cumminsville was the Methodist Episcopal burying ground where a certain lot of ground had been set apart for the use of the colored people. They should pass this and continue on the Colerain Pike till they reached a right-hand road leading to College Hill. At the latter place, they would find a few colored families living in the outskirts of the village and could take refuge among them. Jonathan Cable, a Presbyterian minister who lived near Farmer's College on the west side of the village, was a prominent abolitionist, and I knew that he would give prompt assistance to the fugitives. I asked that one of the buggies should leave the procession at Cumminsville after passing the burying ground and hasten to College Hill to apprise Friend Cable of the coming of the fugitives, that he might make arrangements for their reception in suitable places. My suggestions and advice were agreed to and acted upon as quickly as possible, John Hatfield agreeing to apprise Friend Cable of the coming of the fugitives. We knew that we must ask, act quickly and with discretion, for the fugitives were in very unsafe position and in great danger of being discovered and captured by the police, who were always on the alert for runaway slaves. While the carriages and buggies were being procured, John Hatfield's wife and daughter and other colored women of the neighborhood busied themselves in preparing provisions to be sent to the fugitives. A large stone jug was filled with hot coffee, and this, together with a supply of bread and other provisions, was placed in a buggy and sent on ahead of the carriages, that the hungry fugitives might receive some nourishment before starting. The conductor of the party, accompanied by John Hatfield, went in the buggy in order to apprise the fugitives of the arrangements that had been made and have them in readiness to approach the road as soon as the carriages arrived. Several blankets were provided to wrap around the women and children, whom we knew must be chilled by their exposure to the rain and cold. The fugitives were very glad to get the supply of food, the hot coffee especially being a great treat to them, and felt much revived. About the time they finished their breakfast, the carriages and buggies drove up and halted in the road, and the fugitives were quickly conducted to the men placed inside. The women in the tight carriages wrapped themselves in the blankets, and the woman who had a young babe muffled it closely to keep it warm and to prevent its cries from being heard. The little thing seemed to be suffering much pain, having been exposed so long to the rain and cold. All the arrangements were carried out, and the party reached College Hill in safety and were kindly received and cared for. When it was known by some of the prominent ladies of the village that a large company of fugitives were in the neighborhood, they met together to prepare some clothing for them. 
Jonathan Cable ascertained the number and size of the shoes needed and the clothes required to fit the fugitives for traveling and came down in his carriage to my house, knowing that the Anti-Slavery Sewing Society had their depository there. I went with him to purchase the shoes that were needed and my wife selected all the clothing we had that was suitable for the occasion. The rest was furnished by the noble women of College Hill. Three wagons arrived promptly at the time mentioned and a little after dark took in the party together and another fugitive who had arrived the night before and whom we added to the company. They went through to West Elkton safely that night and the next night reached Newport, Indiana. With little delay, they were forwarded on from station to station through Indiana and Michigan to Detroit, having fresh teams and conductors each night and resting during the day. I had letters from different stations as they progressed, giving accounts of the arrival and departure of the train. And I also heard of their safe arrival on the Canada shore.